Hi everyone, this is Jesse Single, and this is the first of what I hope will be a semi-regular series of interviews I plan on doing for Single Minded, my newsletter. Today I'm talking to Katie Herzog, a staff writer at The Stranger, Seattle's nationally known alt-weekly newspaper. Katie and I only met in person for the first time last year, but we had bonded for a while online over the challenges of reporting on controversial subjects in the age of social media, when writers get instant, uncensored feedback that is often quite intense. Katie's first real taste of this came after The Stranger published a 2017 article of hers headlined, The Detransitioners, They Were Transgender Until They Weren't. It's a balanced, empathetic, deeply human look at some of the complexities of identity, one that in no way calls into question the validity or experiences of transgender people. But you wouldn't have known any of that based on both the Twitter and real-life responses Katie experienced. Things got pretty crazy, and I'll let her explain in her own words in just a minute. After an article I wrote, that touched on some similar themes was published in The Atlantic last year, I got some of the same sorts of responses online, and Katie and I certainly had more to talk about after that. I'll include a link to Katie's article in the show notes, as well as a link to a podcast we mentioned during our conversation, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, that Katie appeared on a live version of in Brooklyn last week. As of when I'm publishing this, that show isn't online yet, but I can't recommend it highly enough, so keep an eye out for it. I think that's pretty much all the background you need. This is the first time I've ever recorded an interview with someone and uploaded it to the internet. The first time. It's an experiment. So please, if you have feedback about anything, about this interview itself or other people you'd like to hear me talk to or suggestions for how to make the whole format work better, send an email to singleminded at gmail.com. And please follow Katie on Twitter and read her work, of course. Thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing. I just want to make sure I can see the... Um... Do you have a little thing up that says recording? Yeah. And then it says, avoid legal snags by telling people you're recording. Well, I'm going to sue you regardless, so. So you and I have both gone through a bit of the sort of internet pylon thing uh, because of our writing. And I think in your case, it was a little bit more intense because it also caused you, you know, basically real world damage to your social connections in Seattle. And it sort of hurt your standing in the community there. But but despite all that, I've heard you still say a few times that you're you're grateful for the experience and you'd, you'd more or less do it all again. Could you just um, explain that a little bit? Yeah, so in terms of the real world consequences, and this is, I think, purely by virtue of the fact that I'm a homosexual, um, uh, a lot of my friends were really pissed about the piece. Ironically, um, the detransition piece, ironically, not many of my trans friends, they actually read it and, and didn't have, didn't actually have any complaints. But a lot of my other queer friends who weren't trans, and a lot of people that I don't actually know in real life, um, but who live in Seattle, were super pissed about it. Um, I lost a lot of people that I was surprised who sort of dipped out of my life. Um, people who I think, I don't know, people who I just, it, people who I thought that I would be friends with forever um, disappeared. And that's still sort of happening. Like even today, I'll, I'll like look someone up on Facebook who I haven't seen in my Facebook feed or whatever for a while. And I find out that that we're no longer friends on Facebook. And my assumption there is always like, oh, I've written something that pissed you off. Um, but there were some, there were some like a couple of incidents 
that were weird. Like the after the piece came out, people put up flyers in my neighborhood calling me in the paper transphobic. It's like, like at the coffee shop that I go to or I used to go to. Um, somebody, at least one person, burned stacks of the paper and sent me video. Um, what I got more than anything was just, it's a bit like very typical Seattle was people just ignoring me. So I've never been worried about people like hitting me or anything like that. But what I get is I'll be walking up the street and somebody that I know just turns around and like just physically moves their body so we don't interact with each other. Um, so that's awkward. And that's including from people that like, including from people that I've dated. So people that I, that I actually know really well. Um, and this is all people who I was on good terms with before the piece came out. Um, and a lot of them, a couple people like came to me directly, but a lot of people just sort of, uh, either dragged me publicly and sort of publicly disavowed me or just disappeared entirely. Um, yeah. I think, um, I've, I haven't experienced depression that just because, uh, <laughs> I think we have pretty different communities. And... Heterosexual and you're privileged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My, uh, us, us heterosexuals stick together, but, um, yeah. I, I will say like, I mean, tell me if this sounds right to you, but it, it's sort of what, what bugs me with the online stuff I've experienced is like, is there some part of you that just wants to be like, can we just talk about this? Can you tell me what you didn't like? And maybe I'm wrong, but like we can at least, it can be a conversation rather than you sort of turning away from me, let alone burning the paper, right? Right. I mean, and my assumption with a lot of this stuff is that a lot of people didn't read the article just because a lot of people don't read the articles. They just look at whoever around them is pissed off. And in my case, there were people who were like some prominent people in Seattle who took issue with the piece for various reasons. Some of them were legitimate reasons, and some of them I don't think were. And uh, and so those people were making a huge stink about it. And so people that I knew and people that I don't know sort of looked at them and said, like, oh, this person is good. I'm gonna just gonna assume that you know Herzog is trash because X Y Z person is saying it. Um, which is like one thing when it's people who don't know you, but when it's people who do personally know you and they decide to take the word of, you know, uh, anonymous online critics or just like people they've heard of, it's frustrating. I do think that if you're going to burn someone's article as a matter of courtesy, you should send them a video of it though. And you should read it too. (laughs) You should read it as much of it as you can read before it's done burning. Yeah. Ideally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, zooming out to sort of the the online stuff you you read about and have experienced. If um, to take a goofy hypothetical, if someone's grandma came up to you and said, "I'm not familiar with social media, but I've heard some bad things. What do you what do you think it's doing to people? How would you respond to that?" Oh my God, someone's grandma. Okay, first of all, I would I would also she has a heart condition, so you can't alarm okay. her in any way. Okay. Um, how would I explain social media? I would say that social media is a lot like high school where people divide up into their separate camps it's very tribal they sort of duel with each other like a sharks and jets thing and there aren't actually any good reasons not to like each other it's based it's just based on like you're good you're bad and then everybody gets together every day and battles it out and then goes back to their respective corners and then nothing ever changes um that's how i would describe it or just you know like a dumpster fire i think that's a pretty accurate accurate description for social media right now yeah it's it's a cliche but it's uh there's a reason it's a cliche. It's accurate. But um, speaking of which, so when I saw you last week, you're in Brooklyn. You um, <clears throat> you went on stage at this event. Uh, it's basically a podcast centered around having people who hate each other talk. Um, 
and you you talked on stage with Robin Canner, who's a, a trans woman who had sort of tweeted meanly about your article. Um, and yours, I would like to add. She also tweeted meanly about mine. Uh, yeah, well, um, well, spoiler alert, but we'll get there. But um, so for those who weren't at this event, uh, you know, how did it go, and why why do you think people should listen to it when it's out? Is it up yet, or is it not? Yet? Uh, I don't think that it's up yet. Um, right. uh, it went really well. It was I was. I was nervous about it because I thought that maybe the audience would be like a lot of Robin's friends who just don't like me. And I know Robin's friends don't like me because Robin's friends, Robin has told me this. Um, so I thought there was a the potential to be, to have some discomfort with that. Um, but the crowd ended up being a lot more the podcast fan, people who listen to the podcast, which I think is sort of an, a group that's inherently probably more interested in getting along um, because that's what the podcast is about. So it was really good. There were no hecklers. Um, the whole thing. Yeah, I, I, it was good. It was good to come together with someone in person and have a conversation and just see like, oh, you're not, you're not a monster. You're not close to being a monster. You're a complex human being. And to be able to like have this conversation and not get mad about it. Um, and so I, I feel like I hope that people left feeling better about the potential for real life conversation and also seeing why it's important to take these conversations that are happening online, offline, because online, especially Twitter, it's just, it doesn't work. It's like, there's just, there's no room for nuance. People are too intractable. It's all about posturing and sort of signaling to your own tribe that you're on the right side of history or whatever. But when you talk to people in real life, I mean, it doesn't seem like this should be a revelation, but like, it's just not that hard to get along. You know, all the shit that you would never say or the, the shit that we regularly say about people on Twitter, like you just don't say that in a in like a human interaction because there's there there's social norms to uphold, you know. So like the idea of calling somebody trash to their face is just very different from doing it online, and I think people are just a whole lot less likely to do it when you're actually confronted by the fact that the target of your ire is a human being. Right, and I I obviously um, can relate to that critique, and I agree with it, and I thought it was a great event. I mean, I um. I don't know. It just made me feel happy about <laughs> being a human being for once. Like it was such, it was so much the opposite of how I spend most of my days online. So I would definitely recommend people check that out. But there is this sort of, um, I'm, I'm all for meeting people and treating people as humans. There is this sort of lefty critique of that idea, which is that, you know, the Nazis were interpersonally pleasant too. And, and a lot of smiling, cheerful, dapper people have terrible ideas and do a lot of harm to the world. So I guess it's easy in this case, because I, I don't believe you're doing any harm in the world. And I don't think your article did any harm. But um, are you at all sympathetic to that critique? Like, there's got to be some limit, right? You wouldn't sit on a stage chatting nicely with just about anybody. Um, You know, I'm I, I can understand that argument, and I think oftentimes the argument comes like you're you're platforming somebody's bad beliefs, and that doesn't really resonate with me that much because my beliefs are not going. I, I highly doubt, at least, that if like let's just say Hitler, let's just take the worst person on stage, right? For, for Who he was at the event. We should be clear. He was Hitler. He went on after you guys. <laughs> he, he was actually the opener, but um, so. Let's say that, you know, somebody asked me to have a conversation on stage with somebody like that or somebody like Richard Spencer. I would probably do it just because I'm interested in, in people who do bad things. Like, I won't even say bad people because I, I don't think I don't think like the world. I don't think that there's such a thing as like good and bad and you're either one or the other. I mean, even Hitler loved his girlfriend. I'm going to get Kareem for saying that. Um, 
But I, I just like I, this argument that like you're going to get contaminated by a bad person. I just don't buy it because it's just not how my mind works. Like I can read Mein Kampf and not leave Mein Kampf thinking that the extermination of Jewish people is correct. And I, and I don't think that most people's beliefs are so fragile that they're going to be turned by a bad argument if the argument is bad. Um, but I, I, I do understand that argument. And, you know, and I think because my inclination is to not draw a line because I know that the line is so arbitrary. Some people are going to say Jesse Single and Katie Herzog, those people are beyond the pale. I'm not willing to talk to them. And I could say like, okay, this, you know, Richard Spencer is beyond the pale, but at some point you're drawing the line and I just don't feel comfortable being the person to draw that line. Um, so this is something that will probably continue to get me in trouble throughout my career, at least at this point in history or this point in time. Um, but I'm just not scared of talking to people who I disagree with, even if they're people who have done terrible things. And also like, I'm a reporter. I'm interested in people who do bad things. I'm interested in why they do bad things. And I think the, the trend now is to try to ignore them or deplatform them or whatever. And I can see some, you know, I can see the benefit to that. Like if everybody had ignored Donald Trump's stupid run for president, he probably wouldn't be president right now. But I'm also, you know, sort of just there's something about me that's just interested in, in people who do bad shit. Yeah, I was trying to like think about how to um, characterize your work for the the sort of intro I'm going to record for this. And I think um, it feels like the world can be divided into roughly into people who when someone's getting trashed or like a witch is about to be burned, some people are going to be like, wow, that person must be terrible or else they wouldn't be about to be burned. And then there's a subset of people who are like, I'm curious what it's like to be that accused witch right now. Or I'm curious, like, if she really did what she's accused of. And uh, I don't know. I sense a lot of that latter sentiment in your work. But do you think that, like, came from anywhere in particular? Was that, like, always part of who you are? I th No, I think a lot of that came from the response to my detransition piece. Uh, I was much more of a sort of knee-jerk progressive, um, maybe for lack of a better term, in that way before the, the piece came out. And I... Uh, I I enjoyed being a part of the pylon. Um, I can't really think of any specific examples where, oh, actually, okay, I can think of an example. So there was a story a few years ago um, about a couple in a small town in Washington state um, outside like on the Olympic Peninsula, outside Seattle, who um, they live their life as though it's like 1850. Like they like heat their, heat their, their house with kerosene lamps and they dress in this, like they, they dress, you know, in this kind of crazy cosplay, cosplay fashion. And this became a, one of these dumb viral stories. Right. And they're not really doing anything wrong. They're just like, they're living this weird life where they're just like in this permanent state of LARPing where they're just pretending that like that the, the modern world hasn't happened. And I, I was writing for another outlet at the time, but I, like a lot of people, a lot of sort of dumb media writers just took the opportunity just like to drag these people just to make fun of them. And I'm ashamed of that now because A, they didn't do anything wrong. And B, it's just not a story. You know what I mean? There's just not a story there. It's like, here's a couple doing something weird. And it becomes this like insane media moment because I guess nothing more important was happening that day. Um, so I'm not, I'm a lot less likely to do stuff like that now. Like I just, I take a few minutes and I consider what the perspective of the person at the dog pile might be. And sometimes I think, you know, people deserve to be under a dog pile. Some, you know, people actually do bad shit. Um, as I said in the, during the show uh, in Brooklyn, I would love it if my landlord were underneath the bottom of a dog pile. 
But for me, as you know, as a person on Twitter, I just find that it's worth spending a few minutes to try to get to the bottom of the story. Because the first story that we hear is almost always wrong when it comes to these things. I felt like um, in the last few months, both the Covington story and the Jesse Smollett story and watching, you know, how ostensibly professional journalists responded to those on Twitter really exemplified that point you're making. Oh, for sure. And that also, especially especially the Covington story, seemed to me when it collapsed, when the initial narrative collapsed, which I, I took part in, I, I watched the first like six second video clip or whatever and was totally appalled by these, these fucking shit eating students. Uh, you know, and then I and then I like actually watched the long the like hours of video and, and changed my mind. But there were so many people who either didn't watch the longer video or did and didn't change their minds. And it seemed to fall so much along political lines that it just seemed like reality doesn't matter. It's really just about uh, you know sort of this confirmation bias, just digging in and believing what you already believe even more, even when presented with evidence that your that that your perspective is incorrect. Well, I mean, today the uh, you know the Mueller report dropped, which yeah. proves both that there was no collusion and nothing illegal, and it proved that Trump definitely tried to obstruct. So yeah, that's nothing, how it works now. Yeah, no, but nobody's mind will be changed by the result of this report. I mean, the, the whole thing just seems silly in a way. It's uh, yeah, it's so it's so corrosive in the long run because like, well, obviously I have my own perspective, but it's just. I don't know. The video showed certain things that did and didn't happen. And the Mueller report showed certain things did and didn't happen. And we need to just like be able to work with the reality rather than always having at least uh, two competing parallel realities. That's just not going to work in the long run. So I've got a question for you. Do you think, do you think that this is in part a, what's happening with journalists right now, sort of taking up the resistance mantle and acting more like activists than, than journalists. Do you think that's a direct result of the Trump administration or is this something that's been building for a while? Um, I think it's a mix of Trump just sort of melting everyone's brains, but also it's mostly on Twitter and on Twitter, the the social incentives are, are so terrible and the stuff I'll see sort of like, respectable professional people say on twitter that just makes no sense or is just so inflammatory um yeah i think it's a combination of both but i do think trump's election had the effect of you know you're with us or you're against us or you're on the good side or the bad side and you know on a zoomed out level trump is a nightmare but it's just i don't know it's this exhausting tendency that like every single thing that happens has to be viewed through strict partisan or ideological or social justice lines and it um you know, sometimes you're just going to need a little bit more nuance nuance in that. Right, right. Well, I, you are a literal Hitler for saying that. Thank you. Yeah, I was. Uh, well, you you're the one who has thus far in this interview. Uh, <laughs> you said a Hitler treated his girlfriends well. I didn't say he B, treated girlfriends well. I said he loved his girlfriend. I don't sorry. know if he treated her well. On the but other he, hand, but he was a vegetarian. Yes. <laughs> so you have two things in common. Uh. Yep. <laughs> okay. So. I was actually going to ask you because um, just along those lines of sort of feeling less at home in certain senses uh, in progressive circles, have you had this thing happen where like conservatives recognize that you're capital P problematic and they sort of pull up in a windowless van and open it a little and they're like, hey, come inside, come be one of us. Yeah, absolutely. And then they find out what, what I actually believe in terms of policy positions um, and they and they quickly change their mind. But I, yeah, I have had that experience and I think it's something that, that people should be wary of because if, 
and I'm not saying this about all conservatives, but there are some conservatives who will try to scoop up problematic leftists or people on the left who criticize the left and and uh, co-opt us for their own, you know, for their own uses. The same way that the conservatives would do it with detransitioners or whatever. So I think it's important to be cautious of that. But I also have found that since this whole experience. I've and I, I've I, my media bubble has really expanded. I have a lot of followers now who are conservative, and I have found that most of them are not the monsters that I've always believed. And I think a lot of them sort of lean more like civil libertarian than like you know evangelical Christian conservative. Um, but I think that this experience also made me more tolerant of of, of you know evangelical Christians in in some strange way. Um, I'm just less I'm less likely now to to disavow people and to stay away from people because of what they believe politically. Because ultimately, like, it just doesn't, it does matter, of course, but like, I can still have a meal with, with somebody who voted for Donald Trump. And I'm in, and hopefully ask them about why, because it's fascinating to me that anybody would vote for that man. I thought, um, I mean, this is a random thing to bring up, but like, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of, um, of Anthony Bourdain's death. And like, I thought he did that so well, the whole, like, yeah. you know, it sounds sappy. And a lot of the same people who were mourning his death would sort of bash you if you said this in a different context, but there is some, there's some shared humanity that everyone who is a human being shares. There is. And I, it's like, it is, it's cheesy, and it, but it's also in some way that's also now problematic, which is very weird, but it is really true. Like we're, all, we're fucking animals, you know, there's, we, there's not that many possibilities for us to vary in different ways, you know? I mean, there's just not. Yeah. I guess to me, it's also like, I, um, just as someone who's written a lot about psychology, like I don't, I'm actually not convinced that people have that much choice over their political beliefs, like between, you know, genetics and your family and the fact that like all these complicated beliefs we have are really just sort of gut level monkey impulses. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're all just, no one has any idea why they believe what they believe. So it seems like a, I, I've tried to find the line where like, I recognize that like they really are locking up kids on the border and that's, that's horrific and nobody should be okay with that. But I, I can't, I don't know, maybe this is a failure on my part, like a failure of moral imagination, but I have trouble blaming individuals just for not getting that that's a big deal. Cause I don't think any amount of sort of moral outrage will convince them otherwise, if that makes sense. Oh no, I think you're right about that. I mean, it, I think it comes down even it's, it's tribal, you know, even, even evangelical Christians who before Donald Trump was running against Hillary Clinton would probably say, I will never vote for Donald Trump still would do it when it comes down to just like, I'm a Republican, this is tribal. I'm just doing the thing that I'm supposed to do. Um, but it is, it's all very morally complex. Um, but I think it's important that we separate policy positions from human beings. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. I think, I think it would be a mistake to apply too much nuance to like, Oh, maybe there's a good reason to separate kids from their parents. There isn't, yeah. but I guess, um, no, yeah. Uh, so you're saying stuff is complicated basically, which is also what Hitler believed. Yes. Stuff. Did he believe that? Is he on record as being from no nuance? Uh, just okay. A few more questions, and then we're going to go to to the lightning round. So get ready for that. Uh, just so in terms of the conservatives pulling up in their uh, proverbial windowless vans, I I do think there's like a um, subset of person, as you alluded to, who, whose brain has gotten so melted by like campus activists or online pylons or whatever else that they just like they really see the world as like a battle against social justice activists more than anything else, and 
have you felt sort of tempted into that or like how why do you think that happens to some people uh i it's it's sort of just another version of uh of extremism i think yeah i see that you know people like dave rubin um whose response to the intolerance of the left is to turn right which i find so anti-intellectual because really this is like we don't vote on SJW issues. We vote on candidates based on their policy positions, and you can't vote SJW culture out of Twitter. You just can't. But that doesn't mean the answer to that is to vote for Donald Trump. I think that's the absolute worst response to the intolerance of the left is to turn to turn into a conservative because they're not actually more tolerant. I mean, in some ways, it, the, things are changing now and they're becoming more tolerant for sure. But I don't think that this idea that the that Republicans are the party of free speech is absolute bullshit. And I think people who are so knee-jerk anti-SJW that they're coming to that conclusion are just like haven't been paying attention to what conservatives have been doing for the last 50 years. Um, so it really bothers me when I see people who agree with leftist policy positions but are so anti-SJW progressive that they're willing to vote for Republican candidates just to say fuck you to the SJWs. Yeah, I think maybe also people get a little bit of whiplash from the fact that like America is weird in that many of our states and our federal government like really are being run by far right figures. But then like it's true that the culture mm-hmm. at every level and the major cities are all owned by liberals. So it's just like a weird schizophrenic country. Yeah, it's very it's very confusing. And then, you know, there's like Normie America who doesn't have any idea of the, like the pronoun battle that we're fighting right now, you know, where this just like doesn't register. I love Normies like mine. Well, I think part of the reason for our different fates is maybe I had, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the reason I had took less real world damage uh, is because most of my friends are normies and you have fewer normie friends with that. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, now I don't have any friends, period, um, except for the old women. I, I hang out with these old women in their 70s who are um, very highly problematic. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's a big part of it is just the company that I've kept for the last 15 years have been radical queers. Um, and then they kicked me out. That that does suck, but I don't want I don't want readers to not to get the wrong impression. Like you, thirty people showed up at a dive bar in Brooklyn for you last week, so you yeah. are uh, you can always you can always become a uh, Twitter refugee and move here. Yeah, you know it, it's I love going to New York because when I go to New York, I I encounter people who like me, and it's so fucking refreshing. It really is. It's just like, but it's also you know I think there's something good about living in a place where you're not you're not actually like because it keeps you very humble i mean actually i don't know if i'm that humble but it just it like it's impossible to sort of get a big ego when i'm like getting emails from people calling me a, a you know whatever a turf or a transphobe or whatever it is we sort of touched on this but i just did want to ask about like your general stance on the current trajectory of um of liberal journalism right now like not not the structural stuff not everyone getting fired and laid off but just what liberal journalists are doing and maybe I assume you're you're worried about certain aspects of that trajectory. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think that journalism, the line between journalism and activism has become incredibly blurry. And I say that as like the paper that I work for, the line isn't it, the line isn't just blurry. It doesn't exist. Like we ha- I'm on a I'm, it's called the Stranger Election Control Board. So it's a committee of, of reporters who are deciding who to endorse for every local, national, uh, statewide election. And so it's the same people who are reporting on the issues are the ones deciding who to endorse. Um, and so that wouldn't happen anywhere else. Like the editorial board and the reporting is completely severed. There's a firewall there for good reason. But my paper is 
very special. Um, so it's like the rest of the world is turning into the stranger, which I don't like. Like, it's, for us, it's obvious. And what you see elsewhere, like our, our bias is written, is written all over the paper. But for other places, it's not. And you see this editorializing in a way that I find completely irresponsible for, for reporters. And, and, and con news consumers are too sort of low information to pick that up. And I don't want to say that it's a fake news problem. That I don't want to parrot Donald Trump. But I do think that a lot of reporters have left, had let, have let their own sort of ethics and agenda get in the way of the truth. Or at least, or at least a balance, even even if there's no like objective truth, which I kind of think there is. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's fucking terrifying. But I, you know, I, there's also a backlash to that, and I have conversations with reporters all the time who I absolutely respect, who are, see what's going on and are trying to do something about it, or at least just trying to improve their own work. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful of that. And I also think that I think we're in a moment right now, and and these things come in cycles these sort of social panics. Um, and I think we'll get out of it at some point and then we'll look back at it and we'll be like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the benefits of being capital P problematic is like, I have that happen too, where people will sort of DM me or email me and be like, here's what's going on where I work. And it worries me. Uh, yeah. I feel like I have access to information I didn't before. Yeah. I think the, a lot of this seems to be coming from the bottom up, which is also weird where it's, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before where there's like, uh, a cadre of 25 year old staffers at some publication who take issue with the story and they mount some sort of insurrection or whatever because they're offended by something which i find kind of crazy i find it troubling the idea that anybody from within a publication would try to get their colleagues words censored i mean because they find the opinion bad or whatever i mean it's like it's one thing if you're like you've gotten information that your colleague is fabricating stories or plagiarizing but that's not what this is this is just saying like Andrew Sullivan or whoever has an opinion I don't like and therefore it shouldn't be published. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, there's some stories that haven't fully come out yet and I don't know if they will, but they're like, they're really, really bad, which is why, what do you think of this proposal? Until you're 32 in America, um, you don't have any rights at all. I think I love that. I would actually increase that to 35, which happens to be the exact age that I am right now. As am I. Yeah. Oh yeah, you turn, you turn 35, you sort of have the equivalent of a, uh, you know, a bar mitzvah where you get your social security number, you can vote now, you're allowed to have opinions. And then you can, uh, yeah, one year later you can run for president. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, I think it's a good system. Um, I, mean, I, I, I mean, like we're kidding, but I do think that there, I do think that there is, that you get a little bit, it does like not, I don't think that you got to be, you know, 70 to, to have the correct take on things, but I do think that there is, something about people in their 20s that makes them especially susceptible to groupthink and maybe people in their 30s too um that can be really dangerous yeah i mean like when i think about maybe i was just a late bloomer but when i was like 24 25 i i definitely wasn't um in a position where i could write about things in at all a really sophisticated way i don't think i mean maybe i guess i'm not sure i can now either but it's definitely yeah there is some degree of um just life experience and perspective and reading. And I think there's probably like a few brilliant guys and girls who, uh, you know, who can do that all from 23 or 24. But for the most part, um, I guess what we're getting at is the peak of one's life is your late thirties. Right. Right. And after that, it's all downhill. After well, there's that. also this, I think there's also this, um, and I absolutely had this until probably the last couple of years, 
but this sort of um, this this intractable knowledge that you were always correct. And yeah. I don't I don't have that anymore. But I for sure when I was twenty five, I was right about fucking everything. Everything. The less I knew about something, the more I was correct about it. So that's what sort of like gets to me because I you know, I'll see someone making the argument that we should punch Nazis or that, you know, the thing, the globe column that shouldn't have been unpublished about um, mm-hmm. hissing or spitting in someone's food, setting aside the fact that it shouldn't have been unpublished. It's like, are you positive that the right people are always going to be making the decision over who gets their food spit in or which person is enough of a Nazi to get punched? Like, there's just this real, um, this hubris in assuming that it's always going to be good people making those decisions, right? Right. It's like this lack of, of historical, of this, uh, lack of history, you know? It, I mean, that's the problem is that people seem to have forgotten. Like, there's a reason the ACLU protected the Nazis' right to march, you know? There's a reason for that. They might not do it today, actually, because now they're, they're apparently being staffed by 25-year-olds. Um, but yeah, th- I, I do think there is this, like, this inability to recognize that this is a bigger p- picture issue. You know who else thought you should punch people you disagree with politically? Hitler. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> any, is there anything uh, exciting you're working on or anything you want to sort of plug before we move on to the lightning round? Um, I'm working on some exciting stuff that I'm not ready to talk about yet. Um, but I did just write something today about uh, about unpublishing and, and this trend of memory holding. Um, and I quote the highly problematic Jesse Single. Um, and it's, I don't remember what it's called, something about the government doesn't need to erase history. The media is doing it for for them. Um, so that was a that was sort of a fun thing to write about. Some different examples of this trend of unpublishing or memory holding um, pieces because you know there's some outcry on social media. If you if you quoted Jesse Single, I cannot in good conscience recommend that to anybody. Yeah, definitely don't share it. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to ask you some random questions now, and if you're listening to this, imagine some sort of incredibly well-produced audio effect indicating the start of the lightning round you ready yes if you could get high with one writer living or dead who would it be and why oh man um okay probably david rakoff um because he's dead but i find him incredibly hilarious and he's somebody that I always wanted to hang out with and I was sorry that he died before uh that I got the opportunity to make that happen what is the worst thing you have ever written oh my god there's so much (laughs) Uh, that's such a hard question I I think everything that I wrote before 2017 was pretty terrible um there's lots of archives check out gris.org and you can see everything terrible I've ever written probably the the worst thing that I've ever written that got a lot of play was about the the carbon footprint of Burning Man um which was just absolute the work of a troll by that I mean myself um but I just I managed to make to 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 uh enrage every person who has ever or will ever go to Burning Man as you say, when when I hear the term Burning Man, I'm just filled with deep apathy, so it doesn't yeah. enrage me. Um, what is your least favorite Twitter subculture? Oh, man, least favorite. Probably uh, do better. Do better Twitter. <laughs> do, you, do you have any advice for do better Twitter? Shut the fuck up. Do worse. That's my advice. Actually, my advice for do better Twitter is to do better. Yeah, I was trying to, I was setting you up for that one. I was trying to lob you the softball. Uh, What's, uh, okay, what's your dream day with your girlfriend and your dream day alone? Two separate questions. 
Um, okay, dream day with my girlfriend. Um, probably, okay. We wake up somewhere incredibly amazing in a place with no other human beings. There's no cell phone service, but really good pizza just automatically shows up at our doorstep. And then also we like go for a hike and smoke a bunch of weed. Um, ideal day alone is exactly the same thing, except that I'm alone. That's good. Consistent. Mm-hmm. What are the best and worst things about Seattle? Okay, the best thing about Seattle is easy. It is, I think it's the most beautiful country, or I'm sorry, the most beautiful city in America. Um, on a clear day, you can see two different mountain ranges as well as Mount Rainier and Mount Baker, which is like 200 miles away. Um, it's just, it's a stunning city for three months of the year. Can I, wait, can I break in just for a yeah. quick story? So Friday night at your Airbnb, uh-huh. uh, six of us got together with dinner and you were complaining about moving into a new house yes. with a new commute. And as a New Yorker, I figured you meant like two hour commute. To be clear, this commute you're dreadfully afraid of, half hour, ferry across Puget Sound, uh, yeah. views of Mount Rainier, right? Right, but I have to, once I get downtown, I have to walk up a, a really big hill. Okay, well. So, or I could take the light rail or like an e-bike. But <laughs> my current commute is a 20-minute walk. So, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough. This is real, like, real lifestyle, lifestyle change for me. I'm moving to the suburbs, which just happens to be across the water. <laughs> Worst thing about Seattle? Oh, the people. Absolutely the people. This is a... Uh, Seattle is a city that is so proud of its progressive values that is in completely intolerant uh, to anybody who doesn't agree with those progressive values. If you if you couldn't live in Seattle or your home state of North Carolina, uh, where would you live? Um, I mean, it's probably somewhere that I've never been before, like uh, Bali or somewhere like the, that. Um, in terms of American cities, uh, maybe... Uh, you know where I would live? I would live on like on Orcas Island, which is a uh, which is a, a small island in the San Juans off the coast of Washington. And there's terrible cell service there, and like three restaurants, and everybody there is probably really wealthy. Um, I think Oprah has a place there. I would live there. That's all I got. Anything? Uh, anything else you want to tell listeners, or anything else uh, you know you want to mention? Um, subscribe to Jesse's newsletter. Yes, incredibly yeah. important. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time katie uh it was great to talk to you you too and thank you for listening everyone